Is there a desire in you to not just attend revival, but live in revival? Welcome to the Revival Lifestyle Podcast. I'm your host, Isaiah Saldivar. I've been in revival for the last 10 years, as well as traveling and being a part of many revivals throughout the United States. I'm going to be sharing with you how to live a radical lifestyle of revival on a daily basis. It's going to be good because tonight we are going into part four of the book of Romans. Again, I take a lot of time to prepare for these. Please stay for the entire time. Please take notes. Please share the content. I know it's not the most popular. It's not the most shareable and viral because we're talking doctrine. We're going verse by verse, but I'm telling you, this will change your life. The word of God is powerful. There's intrinsic power in the word of God. As the word of God is preached, the power of God is released and lives get transformed. You may be sitting under this teaching tonight. You may be just clicked on this video watching on the replay and you don't even realize that your entire life and eternity is going to be changed as the word of God goes forth. We're using the New King James if you want to follow along. We're going over the book of Romans. This is Paul letters to the believers in Rome he had never met or been to, but many scholars recognize this as the most influential document in the Bible because it teaches the whole counsel of God. Like literally every core doctrine to the Christian faith is found in the book of Romans. It's an incredible book. It's one of my top three favorite books in the entire Bible. I want to recap for those of you that are just jumping on chapter five and chapter six. I want to recap to you guys what was going on in chapter five. The Bible talks about being justified, being justified by faith brings peace with God, access to God, hope for heaven, and a purpose in our suffering. Those are benefits of being justified by faith. We get the supernatural peace. We have access to God. We have a hope for a heavenly uh, life in eternity, and we have purpose in our suffering. So we don't suffer for no reason. That was chapter five. Paul also describes that Christ died for us while we were sinners. This is the ultimate proof for the love of God. And Paul basically goes, if Christ is going to die for us while we're sinners, how much more is he going to provide for us now that we're his own children? Like if he did this while we were enemies, how much more now? Chapter six, we've been identified and united with Christ in death, burial, and resurrection. So in those three elements, we've been united with Christ, we've died with Christ, we've been buried with Christ, and we've resurrected with Christ now. We are no longer dead, but we are with Christ now. We are seated with him in heavenly places. And because of this resurrection power, sin no longer is our master. By faith, we can count ourselves dead to sin and alive in Christ. This is exactly what Paul says. You are now dead to sin. How can you keep living in it if you've died to it? It's no longer my nature. I'm a new creature and I'm alive in Christ. This stuff, I know it might sound basic or sound kind of like, you know, just neutral. This should get you beyond excited. This should get your hands in the air going, Lord, thank you that I'm dead to sin now, that I'm no longer mastered by the addictions, by the dysfunctions, and by the things I used to be mastered by, but now I am alive in Christ Jesus, and I'm no longer a slave. I'm no longer being drugged around by the sin nature, which we'll talk about in depth tonight. And then Paul says we must choose between two masters, sin or God. The result of sin being your master is death, and the result of God being your master is righteousness and eternal life. So you choose who's going to be your master. Who do you want to serve? If you serve sin, the result is death, and if you serve God, the result is righteousness with God and eternal life. And that brings us into chapter 7. Yes, we're already in chapter 7. We're going to go over chapter 7 and chapter 8 tonight, but please follow along. It's fun. Grab your coffee, grab your tea, grab your water. I got a, I don't know, some off-brand water here that hopefully, you know, doesn't poison me, but grab whatever it is that you're drinking and jump in verse by verse with me. It'll be fun. Do it with your family. Get your family together. Everybody get out their Bibles. Let's go verse by verse. Let's engage. Let's interact. One of the reasons why I like doing the verse by verse 
is because you guys can be a part of it. You guys can engage with it. And as I'm sharing my, what I believe God is saying and what I believe the word of God is saying, you can also get your own revelation of what God is speaking to you. So we're going to move into chapter seven. And let me remind you this. While the law was never intended to bring about salvation, the law was holy and is holy. It is an expression of God's character and the law helped people recognize their need for salvation. So does the law save? No. The law shows us our need for salvation, but I want to remind you the law is holy and the law is from God. So it's not something for us to laugh at and mock at because yes, the law is done away with, but it did show us and shows us our need for sin. So our need for a savior and shows us our sin. Romans 7, 1 through 3, or do you not know, brethren, for I speak to those who know the law, that the law has the law has dominion over man as long as he lives. For the woman who, ha who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she's released from the law of her husband. So then, while her husband lives, she marries another man, she'll be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she's free from that law so that she is not an adulteress, though she's married another man. So chapter seven, it sounds weird, but my goal is to make some of this stuff that seems very complicated, very simple. Paul opens up by answering the question that he knew the Jewish leaders would be asking. How can you legally, legally be freed from the law? And Paul answers the question by using marriage as an illustration. The law, he says, binds a wife to her husband for as long as the man lives. And then when he dies, it no longer binds her, you know, till death do us part. When the, when your husband or when your uh, wife dies, you're no longer bound to that marriage covenant because the death breaks the law, breaks that marriage covenant. So what Paul is saying is he's using marriage as an illustration to say where there's death, we're now free from the law. So some of the points that Paul is making here, the law has authority over people as long as they live. So if the person's dead, the law has no authority. Only death can break and end the authority that the law has, just like death ends a marriage law or a marriage covenant. All attempts to circumvent the law's authority lead to a violation. So Paul says, if she goes and gets remarried before her husband dies, she's she's committing, she's an adulteress. So if you try to break that authority before death, it's a violation of the law. Death will free you from the law. And then Paul's final point is Jesus died to the law in order that the law would be also dead to us and we to the law. So through the death of Jesus, just like there's a marriage, somebody dies, they can get remarried. The death of Jesus, we are joined with him. I'm trying to be simple here. We are joined with him in burial and in death, burial and resurrection because Jesus has died. There's death to that covenant, to that law. If we're still under the rule of the law, trying to obey the law instead of being submissive to the law of Christ, which is a different, the new covenant law, we're still under the reign of sin. Remember, the power of sin resides in the power of the law. So uh, I'm going to make some very interesting statements here tonight. We're going to go really deep on this. But the point of it is this. If I try to live my life maintaining the law, then really what Christ did on the cross was pointless because Christ came to abolish that standard, that law, that rule, that regulation, that void of relationship type of Christianity where I think this is all about rules and regulations when it's not. It's about the father reconciling us back to the son. And now we walk in the spirit, not in the flesh. We don't need the law to judge us. We already know we're sinners. The Holy Spirit has illuminated our sins. So now we walk by the spirit, not by the law. The law showed us sin. We already know we're sinners. We've been saved by the grace of God. Now we walk according to the spirit, not according to the law. This is what Paul is going to keep reiterating. Jesus Christ fulfilled the just requirement requirement of the law and in doing so broke the power of sin dying to the law does not mean hear me tonight 
Practicing lawlessness, it means discovering the joy, freedom, and power of following the lawgiver. The lawgiver revealed himself in the person of Jesus. The father being the lawgiver reveals himself in the person of Jesus. So this is not about living a lawless life and say, oh, I don't live by the law anymore. I can do whatever I want. This is about living a life now and having freedom and joy in Christ. And now the Holy Spirit directs our life. So God did this for us. In the death of his son, we could not have done it ourselves. God had to do this for us by the death of his son. We would still be under the law if it wasn't for that. Every precept, every command, every ordinance, if it had not been, I quote Romans 7, 4, we became dead to the, to the law through the body of Christ that we may be married to another. So by the grace of God, we belong to Jesus. He is our priest, our master, our savior, our mediator. He is the last lamb. He's the last of the many brethren. And Jesus Christ is has reconciled us back. So we no longer have to live by that precept, standard, and commands. William Barclay, a well-known theologian that has long passed, says this, When a man rules his life by union with Christ, he rules it not by obedience to a written code of law, which may actually awaken the desire to sin, but in allegiance to Jesus Christ within his spirit and his heart. Not law, but love is the motive of his life, and the inspiration of love can make him able to do what the restraint of the law was powerful powerless to help him do. So what, what this theologian is saying is we're not motivated by the law, by rules and regulations that actually I'm going to show you here, make our sin alive. The law awakens our sin. And I'm going to show you this, but instead we walk by the Holy Spirit. We walk by the power of God and we're motivated by the love of Christ. So remember when we die with Christ, we're also dying to the law and we're free from the bondage and the requirements of the law. The bottom line is this, write this down in the comments. The new covenant is the better way. It's better. The new covenant is infinitely better than the old covenant. It's the better way, and it's the way that God has designed us to walk in. We no longer walk in that old covenant, that religious Christianity that much of the American church still lives in, but we walk in the Spirit. Romans 7, 4 through 6. Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. So for when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions were aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. So let me say that again. For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions, which were aroused by the law, okay, and pay attention to that, were aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. But now we've been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in the newness of the spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. Let me say that again. We should serve in the newness of the spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. So when we relate to God through the law by trying our hardest to do what's right, to live by rules and regulations, all that happens is this. And this is a very complex, uh, this is a very complex principle that I'm going to try to make very basic. The old nature, and I'll go slow here, is stimulated by the law to produce fruit that's contrary to God. Paul calls it the fruit to death. Okay, so the the old nature gets stimulated by the law and it produces fruit to death. When Christianity is about rules and regulations and no relationship, we live frustrated because we're unable to obey it and it makes our sinful nature desire to break the law that much more. Okay, it stimulates, it arouses, Paul says, our sinful nature. The new nature looks to God and the Holy Spirit and the person of Jesus for guidance, not the law. Well, you might say, well, didn't the law come from God? Yes, but it was not meant to be a guide for our lives. The law's purpose 
is to show us we're sinners and show us that we need the Holy Spirit to guide us. The law was never meant to guide us. The, the law was never meant to save us. It was meant to show us a need for a savior. And Paul's showing us two natures here, okay? And their outcome. The old nature is stimulated by the law. And Paul says the outcome is fruit for death. And the new nature is stimulated by the Holy Spirit and the outcome is fruit for God. So this is all about a new nature and an old nature. Old nature, law stimulated by sin, I mean by the our flesh, and the old nature stimulated by the law. It desires to sin. It can't keep God's law. The new nature stimulated by the Holy Spirit. The fruit is fruit for God, the Bible says. Remember James says in James 2.26, as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. And this is what Paul is talking about when he speaks of being controlled by the old nature is bringing fruit to death. It's not bringing good fruit. When the Holy Spirit indwells us, in accordance with the teaching of the new covenant, the Bible says we will bear fruit to God. So we bear fruit to God when we let the new nature control us. So one question I would ask you tonight and challenge you with is there's maybe there's no fruit in your life because you're still walking in the old nature, or maybe the evidence that you're walking in the old nature is there's no fruit in your life. There's no fruit presented to God there. Faith, fruit is produced in both the old nature and the new nature, and whoever we are in union with will determine the kind of fruit that we bear. So no matter what we say tonight, we're all bearing fruit. We're either bearing fruit to God or we're bearing fruit, the fruit of sin or fruit that God doesn't, uh, fruit to death, fruit that God doesn't accept. So those are the different natures here. And he says in Romans 7, I'm going to go into a, how the law arouses our sin in our flesh in a second here. Romans 7, 7 through 8. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Because remember, Paul just said the law arouses our our sinful man is the law sin then paul says certainly not on the contrary i should not have known sin except through the law for i would not have known covetousness unless the law had said you shall not covet but sin taking opportunity by the commandment let me say that again but sin taking opportunity by the commandment produced in me all manners of evil desires for apart from the law sin was dead so sin is used several times in verses 7 through 12 it's not referring to the act of sin but the principle of sin, the force living in us that is quiet until we're told not to do something. That's what how the law arouses sinfulness. It's like, have you ever not wanted to do something until someone told you not to do it? You never wanted to do it before. And then someone said, you can't do this one thing. And then all of a sudden when the law or the person said, don't do this, you were aroused to do that. Have you ever been there where you're like, I never even wanted to do that until I was told not to do that. You see many people that have access to all kinds of evilness, don't do it. You look at some of these celebrities that could do whatever they want, drink whatever they want, sleep with however many people, and many of them say, I don't drink, I don't do drugs, I don't do this, I don't. And you think, how could someone who has access to everything do none of it? And normal people that don't have access the moment they get a chance they do it why because those people are not being told not to do it they have full access but when you're told not to do something it makes you want to do something so it's like if you have a sign in front of a flower bed that says don't pick the flowers the sin nature in us will want to pick those flowers are you guys tracking with me this has been going on since adam and eve don't eat the fruit what do they do they eat the fruit god says not to eat the law is the sign that says don't pick the flower it reveals that sin nature and it awakens that sin nature that is contrary to God. This is why Paul is saying the law makes us or arouses our sin. It's the same thing with kids. Kids only want to do the things you say don't do. And you could even use reverse psychology and say, don't do that. And the kid does it when you really wanted them to. You just said it so that they would do it. That's what Paul was talking about. 
and he knew his discussion of the law would raise questions in the reader's mind. For example, because our, this is the words of Paul, sinful passions are aroused by the law. The question would become, and I'm trying to be simple here tonight and make it make sense. The question would become, is the law not wicked? Okay, because Paul is saying the law arouses my sinful nature, so isn't the law wicked? And Paul responds with, certainly not. The issue at hand is not awareness of sin, which is created by the law. Remember, that's the wrath of the law. It shows us that our sin, but we can't, does nothing to help us out of it. The law doesn't cause sin, it identifies sin. So you think, well, the law is wicked because it stimulates sin in me. It tells me to do things that, uh, not to do things when I never want to do it until I was told not to. No, no, it's not wicked. It identifies the, the sin nature that's already been in, in us. So the law is basically like a magnifying glass. It helps us see our, our sin in large, bold font uh, when we wouldn't see it before. And God's commandments make it clear we prefer to follow our own will instead of his. That's been the story of the Bible, is that man has chosen to follow their own ways instead of following following God's ways. And so even many of you listening, watching on the replay, listening on Spotify, you buck against God. God wants you to do something. You do the exact opposite. God says, don't do this. You do it. God says, do this. You don't do it. And we're going to see this wrestle in the apostle Paul of the sinful man, the sinful nature at war against the spirit and a war against, um, or against God. So the law provoked inclination towards sin that Paul told the believers in Rome to look carefully at the newness of the spirit and not the oldness of the letter. So it awoken something in me and I need to be careful not to follow the oldness of the letter, but the newness of the spirit. Paul had learned very, very clearly that we must be dead to the law before we can lay hold of Christ. You cannot lay hold of Christ and walk in the spirit if you are still alive to the law. You have to die to the law die to that uh, old nature, die to that obedience to some rules and regulations and live in the spirit, walk in the Holy Spirit. Because remember, the Holy Spirit brings conviction. I got taught my entire life, this is wrong, this is wrong, that is wrong, but I did all of it until the Holy Spirit came into my life and brought conviction and brought revelation and brought newness of life. Romans 7, again, follow along with me, guys. Romans 7, and I, some of these are complicated. I'm trying to make it very simple. 9 through 11, I was once... I was alive once without the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And the commandment, which was to bring life, I found to bring death. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me and by it killed me. Again, sounds complicated. I'm going to explain this. When Paul says he was alive once without the law, he's referring to the time in his life where he assumed that he was fulfilling God's commands by being a, a religious person. Before Paul's conversion, like the other Pharisees, he had a proud commitment to following God's rules but he says he was alive once without the law the pharisees focused on outward things as long as they seemed to keep the commandments and remain ceremonial clean they believed they were right with god during this time in his life paul was unaware of the sin that was within him so he th he's alive or he's dead thinking that he's alive but really he's dead not aware of the sin that was lurking in him after his conversion paul realized he was sinful and that's why in romans 7 9 he says the commandment came that's after his conversion he was so so convicted by this, he likened it to the experience of death. And so the end, he says, and by it killed me, deceived me, and it killed me. He's likening it to the experience of death. And you might ask, well, how are the commandments intended to bring life? And they can, and this is what how the commandment or the law could bring life is it confronts people with their need for righteousness. So again, it brings them in the place where they need God. People then are able to turn to the lawgiver, seek God's mercy and God's forgiveness. Romans 7 verses 12. Therefore, so after all of that, here's what Paul's about to say. Therefore, 
We're in Romans 7, 12. For those of you asking where we are, chapter 7, verse 12. Therefore, Paul says, the law is holy and the commandment holy and just and good. Now, it sounds kind of weird. You're going like, Paul, you just got done for chapter after chapter telling us the law is dead, the law brings death, the law is not good. And now you're saying the law is holy and the commandment holy, just, and good. But after arguing the law is good, Paul concludes by saying it's not just good, it's also holy. And Paul is, what Paul's trying to do is tr Paul's trying to dispel the idea that the law is a bad thing. He doesn't want us thinking that God's laws and God's commands are bad. He wants us to put the law in its rightful place, not as the guide of our life, not as the way that we get saved, and not as something that can save us or by following rules, traditions, and rituals like many Catholics do. They think by following these rituals, following these laws, following these commands, doing these, uh, these things, they make us right with God. When we know all through Romans, Paul says it's justification by faith. Romans 7, 13. Has then what is good become death to me? Question mark. Certainly not. But sin, that it might appear sin, was producing, producing death in me through what is good, so that sin through the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. So Paul asked the question, is something, if something good being the law the problem, is the law what is causing death in me? He answers with, it's the law causing death, is the law causing death in me? Is that, is it, is that what it's doing, the law inside me? And then Paul's answer is, certainly not. It's not the law that's producing death in the individual, it's the sin. So Paul's question is, is the law producing death in me? Is it bad? No. The answer is, it's not the law, it's sin. That's the problem. Sin and the law being that which is good is an instrument that produces death in per a person. So the law reveals the sin. The sin's what brings the death, not the law. Again, all of this is kind of complicated, but I'm trying to keep it simple and not go too, too crazy on it. Um, this happens when we can't keep God's standard of righteousness. Paul basically says, that's what's producing the death. I can't keep the standard of God. Nothing I do is righteous before God. So I need the, the Holy Spirit. I need Jesus because the law is only showing me my need for him. Romans 7, 14 through 16. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. Okay, so let me say that again. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I, Paul says, am carnal, sold under sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, or what I want to do, I do not practice, but what I hate, that's what I do. If then I do what I will not to do, I agree the law that it is good. I agree with the law that it is good. So Paul's in this battle, he says, I'm sold under sin, I don't understand myself. Every time I want to do something, I don't practice what I want to do. And whatever I don't want to do, I end up doing it. And so I agree with the law. The law's good. It's I'm the issue. So some read this and say, and I used to believe this. They, they would say, well, this is past tense on Paul's struggle before he was saved. But the problem is, and I don't want to go into a big debate on this. Romans 7 is Paul using present tense. So clearly present tense is happening with Paul now. There's this inner battle going on. I don't want to harp on this and debate on this, but I don't believe it's talking about the past, which I used to believe. It seems to be that Paul is talking present tense. And Paul says some very vulnerable things here in Romans 7:14. And basically Paul wonders why he can't control the sin in him. He has the right attitude like many of us. He says, I don't want to do it. I want to do what is good. He goes, but I don't practice what is good. Instead, I keep doing what I hate. And Paul discovers there's a difference between what he wants to do and what he actually does. He is what we, and then he's what he calls sold under sin. In other words, he is unable to buy himself out of the slave market, but he's a slave to these things. He's a slave to this sin nature. 
He can quickly agree the law is good, but recognizes there's no power to change him from the inside. It cannot give him the resources needed to fulfill the demand of the law. The law is demanding. And Paul says, I'm a slave to this. I don't have the resources to get free from this. And when Paul says the law is spiritual, he's referring to the source of the law, which is God who is spirit. When he says it's unspiritual, he's contract contrasting himself with the nature of the law. The law was pure, but he was full of sin. And what's the answer? The answer is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit that empowers us to overcome our sinful desires and fulfill the requirements of God. We can now stand justified before God and live a life of ongoing sanctification because of what Christ did on the cross and because of the power of the Holy Spirit. This whole fighting back and forth of, I, I don't want to do it, but I do it. Everything time I say, I'm not going to do it anymore. I do it again. I don't understand why. There's this inward battle going on. Paul's going to continue to describe, but the answer is Jesus. Romans 7, 17 through 20. But now Paul says, it is no longer I who do it. And I want you to please pay attention to what Paul is saying here because it's some stuff that's very strong that many of us would not even agree with unless it was actually Paul saying it. He says, but now it is no longer I who do it. Okay, so Paul says, the things I'm doing that are sinful, Paul says, it's no longer I that do it, but sin that dwells in me. This is not again acts of sin. It's the sin nature Paul is describing. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. Okay, so let me say that again. Paul says, for I know that in me, that is, in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, and how to perform what is good I do not find. For to will is present with me, he says, but how to perform what is good I do not find. For the good that I will to do, I do not do. But the evil I will not to do, that I practice. Now, if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells in me. So Paul says, there's this evil in me. I don't want to do it, but I practice it. And if I will not to do it, it's not me doing it. It's the sin that's dwelling in me. Again, speaking of his sinful nature that he's battling against. He's speaking again, not of the act of sin, but the force of sin. There's something lurking, living inside of him, inside of him called sin and it lives in the flesh. I want you to also note here that Paul says nothing good dwells in the flesh. Let me say that again. Nothing good dwells in the flesh. Some people argue that demons live in the flesh because nothing good dwells there. The Holy Spirit does not dwell in the sinful nature aspect of the flesh. The Holy Spirit dwells in our spirit. Um, but again, I don't want to get in debate of that. There's a, a lot of argument. Do demons dwell in the flesh? Do they dwell in the soul? It is a very good argument to say that demons do dwell in the flesh because Paul says nothing good dwells there. Nothing good lives there. But in essence, Paul is speaking of a battle going on inside of him, the spirit and the flesh warring against each other. Paul wants to do good, but he's warring with that sinful old man, that carnal nature, Romans 7, 21 through 25. And Paul is being extremely vulnerable here. He's saying, man, I'm doing this. I don't want to do it. I'm doing it. I fight it. I battle it. It's not me. There's something living in me and that thing living in me. You know, the Bible says put to death that, that sin lurking in us. There's that thing living in us, lurking, wanting to do what's wrong, wanting to disobey God that we're constantly having to crucify. We're constantly having to go against. Romans 7, 21 through 25. Uh, I, already, I already read that. Okay, 7, 21 through 25. I find then a law that is evil is present with me. The one who wills to do good, for I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. But I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind, and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members, a wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. 
So we do know definitively, okay, that Christ dwells in Paul. Christ lives in us and lives in Paul. We, he said this several in several of his letters. We know that anyone that puts their faith in Jesus, Christ through the person of the Holy Spirit will also dwell in us. Yet we also know Paul is saying sin also dwells in Paul. In verses 17 and 20, Paul says sin dwells in me and lives in me. So the expression, O wretched man that I am, who, not what, will deliver me from this body of death is exactly where Paul was when he was on the road to Damascus. And the answer came, and the answer was, his exact quote, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. That was the answer. The answer to what is the answer to this battle of this old man, this new man, the spirit, the flesh, this war going on. In one, in one hand, I have Christ living in me through the person of the Holy Spirit. We know that. It's biblical. It's all over the place. But then the other hand, Paul says, there's also sin dwelling in my flesh, the sin nature still living in me, still dwelling there, and I'm constantly battling. And who's going to deliver me from this battle? Who's going to help rescue me from the clutches of sin and death that's controlling me, making me angry, making me bitter, making me enticing me to lust and to steal and to look after myself and to be angry and to say things I shouldn't say and watch things I shouldn't watch and lead me to that human side? Who is the answer? He says this, I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. That's the answer. God through Jesus Christ, our Lord is our deliverer. That's who's going to rescue us from this sinful nature, from this sinful man, that war going on. And the, the real reality is this to all of you watching on a practical sense. Who are you feeding more? Are you feeding your spirit? Are you catering to your spirit or are you feeding your flesh and catering to your old man? Because for many of us, we starve our spirit and we give our flesh everything it wants to eat all day long. And we our spirit's weak and our flesh is strong. And then we wonder why we're losing every single day in, the, in a spiritual sense. Why don't I want to pray? Why don't I want to read? Why don't I want to fast? Why don't I desire the things of God? Because I'm feeding that flesh, that sinful man, not the act of sin, but the sin nature that's still dwelling in me. Okay. It's not just like, oh, it's gone. I don't ever sin. No temptation. No live a perfect life. Once Jesus comes, Paul says, there's still that sin living in me. And the answer to getting delivered from that, Paul says, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Paul's question is, who will deliver me from the dilemma that I'm going through? And the answer is God through Jesus Christ will deliver me from this. We don't lean on self. We don't lean on this or that. We lean to Christ. He's the one that can deliver you from that old nature, that old man. Romans 7.25. So then, with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, both the flesh, the law of sin. So Paul takes a step back to summarize the essence of his struggle, of his struggle, Okay. One part of him is a slave to God, while another part of him is a slave to sin. And Paul's describing being torn between am I a slave of God or am I serving sin? And the choice is yours. The choice is yours. You've been given freedom. You're no longer in bondage. You're no longer, oh man, I love this. This is so good. Obligated to the sinful nature. Obligated means I have to do it. You know, you look at people that are addicted to pornography or alcohol or whatever, they're in denial. I'm not addicted to alcohol. Okay, then stop doing it. They can't stop. Why? Because sin becomes your master and you are obligated to keep drinking. Oh, I'm not addicted to pornography. I could stop any moment. Then why haven't you? The moment you try to stop, two days goes by, you're back on that website and your, your flesh drags you back into sin. And it becomes and dominates you and it masters you. And you keep saying, I could get through it. I could break out of it. But you keep being dominated by what Jesus Christ does. Thank you, Lord, is he removes the obligation. 
I'm not obligated to sin. I'm not obligated to lust. I'm not obligated to anger. I'm not obligated to alcohol or addiction. No, those are not my master. Christ is my master. And this battle going on between the flesh on one side and the spirit on one side, the spirit is going to win today in Jesus' name. I am no longer going to be torn between these two. This is a real vulnerable battle that Paul is opening up about. And I know some of you are holier than thou. You, I don't struggle and battle that. But you know deep down inside, you're, you're, there's a battle going on that many people go through in the church. So don't be ignorant to this. Paul is describing this war. You must choose to make Jesus your master. And many Christians right now can relate to what Paul is saying. I want to do what is right, Isaiah, but I keep doing what is wrong. Come on, type one. Are you with me? I want to live for God, but I keep living for sin. Something in me. It's like some another person in me that's controlling me and causing me to do these things. But at the end of it all, it doesn't matter what you're going through. Jesus is the answer for every single person watching live or the replay. Jesus is the answer. He will deliver you from this back and forth. We need to crucify the flesh. When we do, we begin to lose these desires. This is the process of sanctification. Sanctification, we'll go into in the next chapter, being this process where God is making us like him, where God is renewing us, where God is restoring us, where you're not, uh, you're not obligated. You used to have to do it. Now, maybe you still do it, but you don't have to. You have the power now to say no to the urges and to break free. Okay, recap of chapter seven. As a widow is no longer bound to her husband, we are no longer bound to the law because of Christ's crucifixion. Remember, we died with him and through death, the law is broken. The old nature is stimulated by the law because the law says don't do it and the old nature wants to do it. You guys got that? So the law stimulates the old nature. The new nature stimulated by the Holy Spirit. The law is holy, righteous, and good and shows us our sin, but sin within us is aroused by the law and it leads to self-destruction. Sin uses the law to produce death in us. Let me say that again. Sin uses the law to produce death in us. That's Romans 7, 13. Paul was confused at the end of chapter seven, why he kept doing what he didn't want to do. But then he says, there's something living in me and we have to choose. We're either going to be a slave to sin or a slave to God. Deliverance is only found in Christ. Okay, let us move to Romans chapter eight. Before we go into Romans chapter eight, let us take uh let us look at some basic terms and definitions so that when we talk about them i don't have to keep stopping and you're not confused so let's some basic basic terms uh, guys a lot of the stuff we hear words our whole life we don't even know what they mean so i want to just give you basic we're not going deep into theology so that you can't understand but i want to give you some basic terms here so you'll understand condemnation and these are things that we've misunderstood that i'm going to break down simply condemnation this def definition is being held responsible for and punished for evil acts this is, if you're taking notes, condemnation is a legal verdict, not an emotion. I'm going to show you why that's important later. Condemnation, write this down, legal verdict, not an emotion, like the American church thinks. Justification, this is the doctrine of being declared righteous in Christ. So you're justified, the penalty is paid, you stand before God in right standing righteous because you're justified. Sanctification, this is the process by which God brings the Christian to be the person God created him or her to be. When you're being sanctified, God is bringing you into the nature he's called you to be, and you're becoming the person that God is calling you to be. That's sanctification. Two more terms. The law of the spirit of life. I know it sounds weird, but we'll go into this. The normal pattern of life lived in submission to the Holy Spirit. That's the law of the spirit of life. So the normal life 
submitted to the Holy Spirit. The law of sin and death is the normal pattern of a life lived in sin. So the law of sin and death is what we would live by if we weren't born again and regenerated. When we are born again and regenerated, we become new creatures. We now live by the law of the spirit of life. Those are the diff- There's different laws here. That's the law that we live by, and that's a law. That's a standard by which God requires us to live. Okay, Romans chapter 8, type 1 if this is good. Romans chapter 8, and it's not good because I'm preaching. It's good because this is literally the Bible. Like when I say type 1 if it's good, I mean the Bible is good, not just the preaching of it. Okay, Romans 8, 1 through 2. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Let me say that again. This is incredible news, the best news you're going to get all year. There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For the law of the spirit of life, we just talked about that, in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. Okay? So no condemnation for those that are in Christ who do not walk according to the flesh, but walk according to the spirit. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. Here we encounter another one of Paul's therefores. This one takes us all the way back to chapter 3 where Paul said, the law's purpose was to silence us before God. Paul's come coming from you're condemned to now there's no more condemnation. Justification is the opposite of condemnation. Justification is us declared not guilty. Condemnation is us declared guilty before God. What I'm about to say right here is very important, so please listen closely. Condemnation is not an emotion or a feeling you get. People often hear convicting preaching, a convicting preacher, and they say, I feel condemned. This preaching makes me feel condemned. Condemnation is not a feeling or emotion. It is a legal verdict where you get found guilty for something, okay? So the reason why Paul's saying there's no condemnation because there's a thing called double jeopardy. Double jeopardy says you can't get charged twice for the same crime. The reason we're not condemned is because Christ already took on the penalty of what we've done. He became sin on our behalf. So God says, I'm not going to charge you for that or condemn you for that because Christ already died for that. He already took on that penalty. And the kicker is this, for those who walk according to the spirit, not the flesh. If you walk according to the flesh, hear me closely tonight. Yes, you are condemned. You are guilty before a holy God and you will serve due justice. You will serve, you will reap the reward of your sin, which is the wages of sin is death. So if you're in the spirit, there's no condemnation. But if you're in the flesh, you are condemned before God. And and Paul says this in Romans 8, 3, for what the law could not do in what it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. So the son was in the likeness of sinful flesh. Jesus has the power and had the power and will forever have the power to break the grip of sin and on in and on all relationships. He's the one that delivers us from this body of death. And I quote Paul, Jesus is the one that delivers us from the body of death. But again, condemnation is a legal verdict and there's none for those that are in the spirit. That means you can stand before God and God will slam the gavel down and say, not guilty, not guilty, but I am guilty. I've done everything that re- that requires me to go to hell, to suffer death and death, not just physical, but death, meaning separation from God. But, G- but God says, double jeopardy. I'm not going to charge you for what I already charged my son for. And Jesus took on the full penalty of the sin that my friends is incredible news. That's the best news. And that should get you doing backflips, jumping in excitement and saying, there's no greater message than this. There's no condemnation. Do I deserve it? Of course I do. Uh, Should I be condemned? Of course I should. 
But thank God for Jesus, there's no condemnation for what Jesus did on the cross. In incredible news. Romans 8, 3 through 4. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So these verses remind us of the anguish talked about in chapter seven, that the law makes demand of us, but because of our sinful nature, we can't meet those demands. The law is, I quote, weak and unable to save us. That's what Paul is saying in Romans 8, 3. He says the, what the law couldn't do, the, the law was weak in the flesh, God did by sending his son. So God could have let us perish and suffer the wrath of our unrighteousness, and we, we rightfully deserved it, but because he loves us, he sends Christ to do, here's the kicker, what the law was unable to do. God becomes one of us, lives a perfect life, and dies for our sins. And through Christ, God justly condemns sins of the flesh while offering the gift of righteousness to all who believe. And grace is knowing that God did this for us, with us, even in our sinful condition. So again, I know it sounds repetitive, you've said this before, but while we were sinners, Christ dies for us in our sinful condition. The law leaves us as it finds us, proclaiming with Paul how wretched we are. The law does not change us, the law leaves us where it finds us, and that is in a sinful nature, a sinful man, it just reveals. Here's what Matthew Henry had to say about this. It is the unspeakable privilege, let me say that again, it is the unspeakable privilege of all those that are in Christ Jesus that there's therefore no condemnation to them. He does not say there's no accusation against them, for this there is, but the accusation is thrown out. He does not say there's nothing in them that deserves condemnation, for, there, for this there is, but they see it and own it, but it shall not be their ruin. So yes, we are guilty, absolutely. Yes, there's accusations against us, but, but, but God says there's no condemnation. There's no, there's no guilty verdict on you. Romans 8, 5, for those who live according to the flesh, set their mind on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit, the things of the spirit. So Paul is going to draw a direct relation, direct relationship between the essence of a person being and in the direction of their own thought or their own interests. When Paul refers to those who live according to the sinful nature, he's talking about people who have not received the grace of God. These are non-Christians Paul's describing. The phrase in Romans 8, 5, set their minds on, refers to what is occupying the mind. It refers to your inner desires. Paul says non-Christians do as their nature, their evil nature dictates, and they go from one sin to another. But if you think about like, Anytime you get a new hobby, anytime you get a new interest, anytime something new, a relationship, a, a job, you're constantly thinking about it. You set your mind on it. This is what Paul's describing. Sinful people, they set their mind on sinful things, but spiritual people set their mind on spiritual things. He, he refers to those who live according to the Spirit. He's talking about Christians who are controlled by the Holy Spirit. Christians who want their innermost beings to do as the Holy Spirit directs them, and Christians that think upon things that are holy. Like, let us have thoughts, Lord. Wash our thoughts tonight. Think about spiritual things that matter in eternity. Colossians 3, 2. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. And we really, guys, we really need to start evaluating our thought lives. Decide that you're going to live by the Spirit and think about godly things. Because really, your thoughts will dictate your actions. Your thoughts will steer your life. If you're thinking about dirty things all the time, eventually, 
you're going to give in to those thoughts. If you think about worldly things, you're going to be a carnal Christian. But if you think about heavenly things, if you think about God, if you think about prayer, if you think about saving souls, helping people get delivered, helping people get healed, being used of God, ministry, the presence of God, revelation, the Bible, all these things, then you're doing yourself a favor when you think about godly things. Romans 8, 6 through 8. For to be carnally minded, look at what he says, for to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace, because the carnal mind is enmity against God. The actual translation is the carnal mind is at war with God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Let me say that again. It's Romans 8, 8. So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Now, Paul is not beating around the bush when he's telling his readers what's in store for the sinful man's mind and that what's in store for the mind of a sinful man is, Paul says, death. So if you're carnally minded, you get death. If you're spiritually minded, Paul says you get life and peace. And the soul is redeemed and the mind, let me say that again. The soul is redeemed at salvation, but the mind is undergoing transformation. People say, Isaiah, you're brainwashed because you think a certain way. And I'm absolutely brainwashed. If you think I'm brainwashed, you're 100% right. My brain has been washed by the word of God. My thoughts are no longer things of this earth, but things above. I talk different. I act different. I think different. I look different. I am different. I'm different than I was before. Why? Because my mind is being renewed by relationship with God Almighty. The word of God is brainwashing me. It's cleansing me. I'm brainwashed by the blood of Jesus. I'm no longer walking in the flesh like I used to, but now I'm walking in the spirit. You got to understand the human mind has a high regard in scripture. Paul told the Corinthians to bring every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. There's this constant war going on in the mind and you must let the word of God transform your mind. What Paul is saying here is there's a difference between a carnal Christian and a spirit Christian, and it starts right here, right in your mind. Choose today that your mind is going to be free and that Jesus is going to reign in your mind. Paul's, again, not referring to a religious do's and don'ts, but he's saying you're either in the spirit or you're in the flesh. You can't be both. You got to choose. Am I in the spirit or am I in the flesh? Are you a spiritual Christian or are you a fleshly Christian? Because you have to choose today what you are you cannot choose to be both paul says this to the church in philippians and philippi whatever things are true whatever things are noble whatever things are just whatever things are pure whatever things are lovely whatever things are good if there's any virtue or praiseworthy meditate on these things so paul is saying the mind is powerful and this will determine the kind of person you become so you need to think about things that are holy and if you have unclean thoughts all the time you need to pray lord deliver me from these and if you have thoughts you can't get rid of that are just dominating you you need to get delivered because it's not your human spirit it's not the holy spirit it's a demonic spirit giving you those thoughts the devil loves to try to dominate your mind and the only way he can is if you have demons living in you and if you're getting those non-stop non-stop dominating can't get rid of it could be a demon giving you those thoughts so you need to pray Lord, deliver me. Lord, free me. Find someone to do deliverance on you and get free from those ungodly thoughts. Romans 8, 9 through 10. But you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. Okay, so let me say that again. Some of you don't get this. You are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. So if God is dwelling in you right now, you are in the spirit. You're not in the flesh. That's the key. That's the important part. Now, if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he is not his. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. So Paul now turns his, uh, addresses his readers as you. 
talking right to you, not your Aunt Sally, not your neighbor, you. And he reminds them of who they are. They are, you are, temples of the Holy Spirit. They are not controlled by the sinful nature, but the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, Spirit of Christ, used interchangeably here, are, is living on the inside of you. And some of you are looking for God, but God is living in you. Look no further. God is living in you. But Paul is not saying you are God. That is not what he's saying or what his readers would understand. He's saying that God has taken up residence in you because of your faith in Jesus. The Holy Spirit dwells in you, and now you are a spiritual being. You've been you've died to sin. You're a spiritual being. So you are the address of the Holy Spirit. You're the temple of God, Romans 8, 11. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the spirit who dwells in you. So the Holy Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead infuses in our mortal bodies with resurrection power here and now. We're no longer helpless victims of sin anymore. The life-giving Holy Spirit can overwhelm the power of sin and empower us to live a godly life. We don't have to wait until we die to experience resurrection power. We can experience it. Here, right now, the resurrection power of God is available to us right now. This is what Paul is saying. Romans 8, 12 through 14. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if the spirit you put to death, the deeds of the body, you will live. For as many are led by the spirit of God, these are the sons of God. So Paul's going to move now from instruction to exhortation, from what God has accomplished to the importance of our response to what God has accomplished. He outlines the needed response in one word, obligation. The original text means one who owes a moral debt. We are obligated. We cannot earn or buy our salvation. We are called by God to follow him in Christ. We have all that we need to serve God. And our moral obligation or moral debt is living this life to serve God, living the good life, fulfilling the obligation of what God has done. So we're obligated to do this. Christ has set us free and saved us. Now we are obligated. We are in debt to serve God for the rest of our lives. That's the bottom line. Romans 8, 15 through 16. For, oh, I love this. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So Paul says you no longer need to live a fearful life. Some of you watching this right now are afraid of everything. You have a spirit of fear. I'm going to die. I'm not going to go to heaven. The, the world's going to end tomorrow. This is going to happen to my kids. This is going to happen to my marriage. This is going to happen to me. You live with a sense of impending doom. That is a spirit of fear. But God has not given you a spirit of fear. That's the devil that gives that. It's not God. God has given you a spirit of power, love, and a sound mind. But what Paul is saying here, you did not receive a spirit of bondage again to fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption. And now we cry out, Abba, Father, which translates to Daddy. We cry out, God is our Father. The Spirit himself bears witness that we are children of God. Notice this, what Paul says here. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. How do I know I'm a child of God? Deep down inside, my spirit bears witness with God's spirit that we are children of God. And I know that 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 I'm a child of God. Now, maybe you say, I don't feel that. Well, believe it until you feel it. Walk this thing out. You are a child of God. Romans 8, 17. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. So in Paul's letter, the idea of inheritance was strongly influenced by Roman law. According to Roman law, a person received his or her inheritance rights and was considered a co-owner of all the tangible and intangible assets from birth. Through he or she did not take full possession of the inheritance until the parent's death. 
So as a child, listen to this, in Rome, you were a co-owner of all assets from birth. You were born with all co-ownership of all the assets your parents had, but you didn't get full possession until the parents' death. So Paul is saying, as soon as we're reborn and we put our faith in Christ, we are joint heirs with Christ in all that God owns. And it's God's pleasure to share with his children what is his. But we're not going to receive the full extent of our inheritance until we enter the full presence of God. And even now, he blesses us with some of the enjoyment of his possessions, his blessings. But in, again, until we die, we'll know we will not get our full inheritance. This is just a taste of things to come. Romans 8:18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us in us. So Paul is saying this. If you want to stay faithful to what you're doing, if you want to stand and bear under the weight of trials, sufferings, and everything you're going through, he says, look far ahead to the future. That's what you need to do. With all the pain, all the hard work, all the ridicule, all the self-denial, he says, none of it is even worthy to compare to the glory waiting for us. So if you took every terrible thing you're going through, every hard situation in life, and you put it on a paper and you try to compare it with the glory of standing before God in eternity, it's incomparable. What it, what Paul is saying is once you get to heaven, everything that you've been through, all the hell that you've gone through in a real literal sense on earth will be insignificant. So stop looking down at your situation and look forward. And every time you're going through it, say, it's nothing compared to what I'm going for. It's nothing compared to the glory waiting for me. This is nothing compared to the destination at hand. This is nothing. One day, one day, I'm going to be in eternity on that crystal sea of glass. I'm going to be standing before the throne of God, praising and worshiping. And I mean, these little trials, somebody backstabbing me, some sickness in my body. I lost my job. I know it sounds, it sounds so major right now, but one day in eternity, it's going to be so insignificant. And Paul says, I'm not even going to compare it. There's not even a comparison to what's lying before me. And I'm telling you, that has got me through that one scripture has got me through some of the hardest times in my life, some of the biggest trials I've ever gone through. I've looked at that and said, I know it doesn't lessen the blow right now, but this isn't even gonna matter in eternity. It's gonna be so insignificant, this life is so short. Romans 8, 19 through 21. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also be delivered from bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. So what Paul is saying is not only was uh, mankind cursed or we were cursed because of Adam's sin, but creation also was. Not willingly, they were put under a curse and they were subjected to corruption. So they're waiting for the hour of Christ's return where God is going to glorify us and we're going to be dwelling with God on the earth. And what Paul is saying, there's this earnest expectation, this looking forward to not only us, like guys, we're not the only ones waiting creation that's under the curse is waiting for the coming of the Lord as well. Romans 8, 22 through 23. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pains together until now. Not only that, we also have the first, we also who have the first fruit of the spirits, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. So the pain, pains of childbirth, he says, are intense, but they show that life is coming. Life is on the way. When you're in childbirth and you have those labor pains, those contractions, it's a sign that life is coming and Jesus is coming. The earth is in labor. Creation's pain is both a consequence of the fall, but also a prophecy of redemption. There is labor pains when you see the diseases, the earthquakes, the hurricanes, everything happening in the world, this pandemic, all that's going on, 
These are labor pains. These must happen. These are contractions because there's a real man coming back to the earth. The earth is in labor. It's having contractions. And so are we as we wait for Christ's return to the earth where he will vindicate his people and establish his throne. Romans 8, 24 through 25. For we were saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. Let me say that again. For we were saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we don't see, we eagerly wait with perseverance. So part of our salvation, Paul says, is yet to be given. Namely, our bodies have not been redeemed yet. We have not had the redemption of our bodies. We've not received glorified bodies. We have bodies that are in pain, that break down, that have sickness. So that's a part of our salvation we've not experienced. But the, Paul says we wait patiently in, our ho in hope for when our bodies are redeemed. And the benefits of salvation if we receive all of them now basically if god gave us every inheritance everything now there'd be nothing to hope for paul says you'd have no reason to hope but hope is essential in waiting for the lord's return so we hope because we know there's more for us and we're hoping on christ's return and god redeeming our bodies and oftentimes i've learned this faith does not usually die on the operating table it dies in the waiting room people often die and lose faith while they're waiting on the promise. So you got to keep waiting. Praise God in the waiting room. God might not be doing it now, but Paul says we hope for this redemption, this return of the Lord. Romans 8, 26 through 27. Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses, for we do not know what we should pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the spirit is because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. So I believe this is twofold. Number one, I believe the Holy Spirit prays through us with groans that can't be understood or uttered. The Holy Spirit, when we pray in the spirit, he prays through us and makes intercession on our behalf and prays the perfect will of God. Because remember, now he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the spirit is. God knows, the spirit of God knows the mind of God. So the spirit searches out the deep things of God and prays on our behalf. And then number two, that's element one is praying in the spirit, which I know people argue that's not what it means. Number two, the Holy Spirit intercedes for us. This is what it's saying here. He makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. So Holy Spirit prays out of me and the Holy Spirit makes intercession on my behalf. Plus the Bible says Jesus forever makes intercession on our behalf as well. So you have Jesus, the son praying for you and you have the Holy Spirit praying for you as well so you have both of them praying for you you got a lot of people you got a lot you got a lot in your corner so don't give up don't get tired this is a twofold blessing praying in the spirit's a beautiful thing where the holy spirit begins to pray out of you i like to say when you pray the pray in the spirit the holy ghost has a prayer meeting inside of you romans 8 28 and we know that all things work together together for the good of those who love god to those who are called according to his purpose so those who are called not everybody but those who are called according to his purpose god says i'm going to work things out for you and you've met these people it seems like no matter what they do it just works out for them that's because they are called not that they're specially chosen but remember being called is you choosing to respond to the call of god many are called few are chosen few choose to respond to the call so you all all 2000 of you watching could be called right now you have to choose to respond to god and to serve god and to follow god and when that happens god begins to work things out for you things that are don't seem good things that seem terrible god says i'm going to work it out for you and then he says in romans 8 29 through 30 for him he foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son that he might be the firstborn among many brethren 
whomever whom moreover whom he predestined he also called whom he called he also justified who he justified he also glorified so i have a video on youtube called the seven things god does for the called and it's number one he foreknows us number two he chooses chooses us number three he predestines us number four he calls us number five he saves us number six he justifies us and number seven he glorifies us those are seven things that romans is talking about and i break them all down and it's called on my channel the seven things god does for those who are called um beautiful what paul says here in romans romans 8 we're almost done here 8 31 through 32. what then shall we say to these things if god is for us who can be against us he who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all how shall he now how shall he not with him also freely give us all things so basically it would be as if the illustration is if you bought your kid a ferrari you gave your kid the ferrari then you took the rims off sold the rims and bought cheap rims and put them on the ferrari what he's saying is if you went through all the trouble of buying the ferrari why would you take off the nice rooms and give bad rooms like if god went through all the trouble of giving us jesus he gave us everything how much more is he going to give us other things freely right he gave his most valuable possession was jesus if he gave us that freely how much more is he going to give us everything else freely that's the point the point is if you buy your kid a ferrari you're not going to take off the rims sell them and put cheap rims on so if god gave us jesus this valuable pearl of great price how much more is he going to give us all the things that we need? It's, it's a beautiful revelation. Romans 8, 33 through 37. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. It, who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore has also risen. And he's even at the right hand of God who also makes intercession for us. So the Holy Spirit intercession for us. Also, Jesus makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As is written, for your sake, we're killed all day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. So what Paul is saying is when you're going through distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword, division, dissension, attacks of the enemy, everything's falling apart. Don't think you're being separated from God or God's mad at you. God is just as close to you there. These things are not separating you. And that's why he closes Romans 8 by this. Romans 8, 38 through 39. This is his close. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord Paul covers every, everything and says nothing can separate us from the love of God it is clear God's love is is so powerful there's nothing anyone can do to stop or to separate us from it the love of God has so much power that nothing can separate us. And that is, my friends, what motivates us to live that Christian life, to go after God. We're at perfect timing here, an hour and 15 minutes, and to serve God with everything in us and to make a choice now. I'm going to walk in the spirit, not in the flesh. If you walk in the flesh, yes, there's condemnation. But if you walk according to the spirit, there's no condemnation. And I don't know about you, but I'm choosing right now to walk in the spirit. Type one if that's you right now i'm choosing to live my life not carnal because remember a carnal christian produces death but a spiritual christian i know we covered a lot of stuff i tried to keep it very simple i hope i did a good job but i want to pray for you guys now because i believe god is calling us to live a spirit-filled spiritual life father we pray right now over every single person watching i pray lord that we would not live the carnal christian life but we would live a life in the spirit that our mind 
Lord, tonight, wash our minds with the word of God. Wash our minds with the blood of Jesus. Wash our minds with the Holy Spirit. Let us, Lord, live lives that are pure, lives that are righteous, lives that are according to your word, God, that nothing can separate us. And no matter what we're going through, Lord, Father, it's nothing. Some of you need to hear this. It's nothing compared to the glory that's waiting for us. No matter what stress you're going through, tiredness, weariness, it's nothing compared to the glory that's waiting for us. So, Father, I pray that you would consecrate us. Lord, that we are passionate for your word. Don't let us get stuck in the busyness of life that we forget to pray, that we forget to read, that we forget to walk according to the Spirit. But God, let us be led by the Spirit that there's no condemnation for those that are led, that we are heirs of you, Father, that, Lord, if you didn't withhold Jesus, you will not withhold every blessing that we need according to your word. I pray over every single person watching, God, let them be spiritual Christians. No more carnal Christianity. But God, let us be spiritual. Let us live in the Spirit, walk in the Spirit, pray in the Spirit. Holy Ghost, we pray that you would make intercession for us. Jesus, we pray that you would make intercession for us. You know, many Catholics pray for the saints to make intercession for them. We don't need to pray to saints. There's nowhere in the Bible where it says to pray that saints would make intercession for us. We already have Jesus and the Holy Spirit making intercession for us. That's good enough for me. Father, I thank you, Lord, that the Holy Spirit and Jesus are making intercession for us right now. And I pray, Lord, that you'd continue to guard us to guide us, to direct us, that every person watching, that you would be in their homes, that your angels, Lord, according to Hebrews 1, would go all around that home, that you would bring breakthrough, that you would bring deliverance, Lord, that you would heal us, that you would renew our minds, that you'd wash our mind in the word, wash our mind in the blood of Jesus right now, Father. I pray restoration, God, over every person watching. I pray healing over every person watching. I pray deliverance over every person watching. And I pray, Lord, that our homes would be blessed, our marriages would be blessed, that Lord, our thought life, I pray right now, Father, that we would take every thought captive that exalts itself above the knowledge of you. Sexual thoughts, thoughts of anger, bitterness, racism, hatred, resentment, gossip, division, contention, jealousy, rage, all the stuff that we think about, all these worldly things, I pray, Lord, according to your word, that we would not be these carnal Christians that produce death, the fruit of death, but we would walk in the spirit and we would produce life. In Jesus' name. Thank you, Lord. Father, right now, come on, just begin to pray for yourself right now. Father, we pray that you would have your way. Do what only you can do, Lord. We can't do it, Father. We need you to do it tonight. Jesus, have your way, God. Have your way, Lord. Whatever your will is for their lives, I pray, God, that you would establish it and that you would do it right now. Give us a mind that meditates on your word. Let us think about things that are holy, righteous, good. Cleanse our mind right now. Come on, if you need that, this is your moment. Father, cleanse our mind right now in the precious, precious blood of Jesus. Wash our mind in Jesus' name. Fill us with your Holy Spirit right now. I'm asking for myself, guys. Lord, renew my mind. Give me clean thoughts and a pure heart. Restore my mind, Father. Fill me with your power and your Holy Spirit. Thank you, Lord. Have your way, Father. Have your way. Do what only you can do right now. I say yes to you, Jesus. I say yes to you, Lord. Whatever you want to do. Come on, say it right now. Father, whatever you want to do, have your way. Do it in me, in Jesus' name. Thank you, Lord. Have your way. Breakthrough, deliverance, healing, revival. God, do what only you can do. In Jesus' mighty name, we need you. Some of you are tired, weary. You're about to throw in the towel. And God says, keep on pushing. Whatever you're going through is nothing compared to the glory that's waiting for you in eternity. Thank you, Lord, that we look forward. We look forward. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. 
Hallelujah. Amen. If you guys want to sow into tonight's broadcast, you can, as usual. We're crowdfunded. We're supported by you guys. All of our content is free. We couldn't do this without your donations. So pray about giving. We always say don't dine and dash as a joke, but it's really not a joke. Um, again, we can't do this without you guys. If you want to give, you can. If you're angry, bitter, you're like, oh, I don't want to give. How dare you ask for money? Then guess what? Don't give. Thank you. All right, don't give. Just enjoy the free content. Hang out in the chat tonight. You don't have to give a dollar, but those of you that can afford to give, that want a monthly partner, we do need you guys to support monthly. We do need you guys to sign up. Many people sign up, then cancel, sign up, then cancel. We have a, always new people coming, new people ending their partnerships. So please, if that's you, pray about partnering, pray about sewing in. It really does mean a lot. All the links to give are on screen. I'm going to, I haven't hung out with the chat in a while, uh, actually in a while, because I've been so busy just gutting off and doing things. But tonight, I'm going to spend some time hanging out with the chat. If you're listening on Spotify, Apple, and all that, and you're still on, you can give on IsaiahSaldivar.com slash partner. IsaiahSaldivar.com slash partner. You can give there. Thank you for listening. Audio. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of the Revival Lifestyle Podcast. If you like what you heard, go to www.isaiahsaldivar.com for more content. And please follow me on Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram at Isaiah Saldivar. See you next week.